reading this evening is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, from verses 28 to 44. In the Church Bible, that's on page 1054. So Luke 19, beginning at verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany, at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, Rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Well, I think Palm Sunday has a lot about expectations and anticipation to it. And I don't just mean because you can now count down seven days till you get to enjoy mm, those delicious galaxy chocolate eggs. Um, I know I heard some tutting earlier when I said that, so it's fine, it's fine. It's, it, it, I'm, it's probably a secondary issue, so um, don't worry about that, but um, we will have a short prayer meeting for you after the service. But I think it is about expectations. In fact, you know, having, having a guest come and preach... Uh, comes with its own expectations as well. Although they say for the minister who's invited them, uh, it's only ever positive expectations. Uh, because either the person that you invite speaks well and faithfully and your people are well fed from God's word, or they don't, and they're even more glad to have you back the next Sunday. But shall we pray then that by the grace of God, it would be more of the former and less of the latter? Heavenly Father, we ask that as we look at your living word together, the word which speaks into our hearts, that by your grace you would be preparing us now to receive from you what it would, is that you're saying to us. Lord, how you're encouraging us, challenging us, equipping us, convicting us to see more and more the wonder and the joy of the King who came to save us. We ask, Lord, that you would do it not only for our good, but for your glory. 
in Jesus' name. Amen. Speaking of expectations, you come to hear a sermon about Palm Sunday on Palm Sunday evening, and then in the gospel reading, you don't get either palms or the word Hosanna. Did you notice that uh, as we were reading from Luke? If you've got it there, you can look down, check that I'm telling you the truth. It's not a scam. In Luke's gospel, he doesn't mention either the palms or the singing of Hosanna. Now, if you were here this morning or you heard Ben's talk this morning, you will have heard it because it's, it's there, it's in Mark. But Luke chooses to focus on slightly different details. And there's nothing worrying about that. There's nothing concerning about that. All the gospels together build up the picture, the true picture of Christ, of Jesus, and of what happened. And Luke is just giving us different details. I enjoy uh, watching the football. I think if I hadn't been invited here this evening, you would have found me at home watching Man City versus Liverpool on the TV. I don't know the score, so please don't shout it out. But when you watch the football, you see different camera angles. Uh, you have a whole range of cameras in the stadium, which are giving you a different perspective on what's going on. Some will be quite zoomed out, the wide shot to show you the whole pitch. Others might focus in closely on a particular player at a particular moment. And the Gospels are like four camera angles on the same events. Four ways that God's given us to show us who Jesus is, what he's done and what it means. And that actually is a reassurance to us that these Gospels are here as God's true and accurate description of what happened and what it means for us. But it does go to show sometimes that even if we've been a Christian for a long time and we've heard a lot of talks on Palm Sunday, maybe even uh, given talks on Palm Sunday, that actually you you can still be surprised. You can still have your expectations uh, adjusted by God's word. When you come and read that gospel and you say, oh yeah, it doesn't have any palms. And uh, oh yeah, in this account, he doesn't recall that they were singing Hosanna. It's helpful to be reminded that we're always all still on a journey with God. There's always more for him to show us. There's always something or other in our understanding which God can still work on and refine and help us to get a bigger, fuller, brighter, more rounded picture of Jesus, who he is and what it means for us. So let's look at this passage together And let's be ready to have our expectations widened. Let's be ready to have an even greater picture, an even fuller image of who this Jesus really is. Because I don't know about you, but one thing I'd hate is to try and fit Jesus into a box of my expectations. I want to allow God's word to show me, not that Jesus fits my expectations, but actually that I can fit my anticipation to who he is. So the first thing uh, I think we see in this passage is that this king who's coming in this entry into Jerusalem is the all-knowing king. Jesus uh, sends two of his disciples ahead of him in verse 30. Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, say the Lord needs it. So those two disciples go ahead, and they find it just as he told them. And as they're untying the colt, its owners ask them, Why are you untying the colt? And they reply, the Lord needs it. Now, some people have tried to explain this by saying that Jesus must have prearranged this, that he must have sent someone else ahead of time to arrange for this colt to be there at just the right place. And the person they were going to speak to was expecting them to come and like he set the whole thing up. A bit like when... uh, I was on holiday once as a young boy, my brother and my dad, 
and um, we found a metal detector at the place that we were staying at. Me and my brother were really excited, really excited. We were young enough to still believe in buried treasure, really. And so we took this pretty rubbish metal detector. I mean, it probably only measured, like, less than the, bl- <laughs> the length of a blade of grass. Like, you probably could see deeper than it measured. But anyway, we were excited. And we went out into these fields around the cottage where we were staying for hours absolutely hours thinking that we were going to find some sort of buried treasure or something and eventually came home disappointed about an hour later my dad came back in this time with muddy boots on which was strange and said you know what boys maybe you should go and check exactly this little piece of land down by the river and you know what we went down there and we found modern pound coins all along the riverbank it was amazing i won't tell you how old i was when i realized that uh that my dad had set the whole thing up. But my dad had to set that up because he's just my dad and he loves us and it was probably his idea in the first place and he knew he'd get in trouble if we didn't find something fun. But when it comes to Jesus, he doesn't have to set these things up. This is the same Jesus who told them to pour water and it turned into wine. This is the same Jesus who told them to cast their nets on the other side and they bulged with fish. This is the same Jesus who told them to take one boy's picnic and hand it round and they fed 5,000 plus people. This Jesus does not need to set things up. And as you read it through in the way that Luke describes it for us, you can see that he wants us to see that this is yet again another miracle. That Jesus just knows that this is where the cult is going to be. He knows what they need to say in order to enable them to bring it to him, in order for him to fulfill that prophecy that he would be the king who rides in on a donkey. Luke wants us to see that God knows. Jesus knew. He had that divine insight into exactly what was going to happen. And that's important at the beginning of this week in particular. That if Jesus knew that there was going to be a cult there and what they had to say to bring it to him, then Jesus knew also where he was heading a few days later. The Jesus that knew of the cult is the Jesus that knows of the cross. It's all part of God's plan. He knows. And thank goodness that he does. Thank goodness that he does know and he knows us and he understands us and he sees the things in us that actually would hold us back from God. Those things which create that barrier, that separation that cut us off from God and the life that is in him and him alone. Thank goodness, thank God that he does know and he does see. If it was anyone else, I think it would be terrifying for them to know everything about me, all my thoughts all my actions, all my words, all the things said or thought or done in secret, all the things I look back on over my life and regret the choices and the decisions that I've made. If it was anyone else except a loving and gracious God, it would be terrifying. If you met the Queen, say you get an MBE this year, congratulations. And you go to meet the Queen at Buckingham Palace, and as you go forward to receive your MBE, she just leans in and says... I know when you bullied that kid in the playground in year five. And she starts to unravel all these things that you've done in your life. It'd be terrifying, wouldn't it? To meet someone with that sort of power and authority and for them to know everything about you. To be sort of embarrassed in front of someone like that. I had an experience of that once. I was invited to uh, Arundel Cathedral uh, for uh, a Christmas concert. A lady in our church was part of the 
uh, choral society, and she invited me to go to uh, the cathedral for their Christmas carol concert. And she did that clever thing of inviting a vicar long enough before Christmas that I remembered how busy I would be, if you see what I mean. So I said, yes, sounds like a nice thing to do. But it got to the middle of December. It was like a Saturday evening, middle of December. And I, I was kind of like, said to Emily, my wife, I don't want to go. I don't really want to go. We've got services tomorrow. I'm busy. She said, you've got to go. You've got to go. They've probably put a ticket aside for you. So I said, fine, I'll go. I didn't get changed. I mean, I, I, this is pretty much as smart uh, as I ever am. Um, I read, you know, the instructions from Ben and <laughs> raided my, my, my bed a cupboard. I'm not known for my snappy dressing. And I, I was kind of there going to Arundel Cathedral to cross. There's been lots of people there. I'll just go, sort of sneak in at the beginning, make sure I wave, get her attention so she sees that I've come, uh, and then I'll sort of quickly head off at the end. So I was in my trainers. I mean, yeah. It's a good thing that you don't know what I'm describing for you. Uh, and I had a T-shirt on, and I think I'd spilt some food at lunchtime, and it had some stains running down it and some pretty, you know, some joggers or something on. And I thought I'd just turn up at this cathedral. I'll, I'll wave at this lady who's got me a ticket. I'll sneak in. I'll listen. It'll probably be quite nice, and then I'll go home. Anyway, I got there. Bang on. Start time. 7.30, something like that. Bad sign straight away. She's at the door waiting for me. I'll sneak up. Oh, good. You're here. And she's not alone waiting for me. There's other people there waiting for me. And I go in and I suddenly realize it's not just the choral society that's singing. All the local school children are also performing. And therefore, all these parents and grandparents have packed out Arundel Cathedral for this premium event of the year to hear this Christmas concert. And it turns out they were waiting for me. I think there must have been 500 or more people there. And instead of me sneaking in at the back, she marched me down the middle, all the way, past all these parents, to the front row where there was one VIP pew at the front, with me and the Duchess of Norfolk. (laughs) I tried so hard to get my trainers under the pew in front of me, out of range. I kept my coat on and I wrapped it up. And when she asked me, who are you and what do you do? Probably thinking I was on some sort of, you know, let's give the homeless a nice night out. (laughs) I was so tempted to not tell her who I was. Or to sort of tell a half-truth. To not give much detail. Oh, I'm a local vicar. She might think I'm the vicar of Arundel. No, she would never think that. He's incredibly smart. And there was just the Duchess of Norfolk, and she, she was lovely. She smelled incredible, which was great, because I didn't. And I didn't even really want her to know who I was, because of a few superficial things that weren't particularly tidy. Jesus is the King of Kings. He's the King who knew where the donkey was. He was the King who knew he was going to the cross, and he's the king who knows everything about me and everything about you. But he still loves us. He still chose to go to the cross. He knew what he was doing. He knew where he was heading. He knew where that week was taking him. He knows us. And it was for our sin, the real things, not on the outside, the things on the inside, 
the things that only he and we know, and he willingly went to the cross. It's a good thing that he knows us because he knows what it took to forgive us. So Jesus is the all-knowing king who knew where the cult was and knew he was heading to the cross. He is therefore also the praiseworthy king. And we see that as they make their way into Jerusalem. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they'd seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, they sang. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. As I said, there's no palms described in Luke. We know they're there because Mark tells us. Luke focuses on the coats, the cloaks. And they lay their cloaks over the donkey and they lay their cloaks on the ground. It's another sign that this is the promised king. And it's also a very practical and costly act of worship. Real worship, true worship, is, of course, costly. Now, we know, and we all know, and I know that you know, that we've had to, in some sort of areas of Christianity over the last few decades, actually come back to the Bible about worship and make sure that we're not just defining it as singing or the things that we do when we meet together on a Sunday. But see that actually worship means to offer our whole life over to God, to give to him what we have, to offer up those things that are of some worth in order to give honor and glory to the king who is of all worth. And there's a little picture for us there of those people laying their cloaks in front of that donkey. We acted this out this morning in our uh, Sunday school at church. Uh, we got the children to line up on either side, and uh, one of them was pretending to be Jesus riding in. And as Jesus came in, they, they threw their kind of coats and cardigans down on the floor as Jesus made his way in. But, of course, the floor was clean, and they were going to pick those coats up again, and it wasn't a real donkey. I mean, I wish it had been a real donkey, actually, but it wasn't a real donkey. But for the people then, actually, to do that, yes, they're fulfilling a prophecy about it, but they're also throwing down what presumably may have been their only cloak into the mud and the dirt and the dust, ready for a donkey to make its way across and tread holes and marks in it. And I think there's a picture there that when we see who this king really is, our worship is going to be about giving up those things that are of some worth in order to have the king who is of all surpassing worth. To be ready, almost literally, to lay down those things that we would otherwise hold on to in order to gain what Jesus alone can give us. Our salvation, our restoration with our Heavenly Father. Think of a couple that I know who were planning to move. And as they were making their plans, they were fairly far advanced. In fact, they'd had people to come and look at the house. I think they'd even had an offer on it. And I was trying my best to do that kind of vicar thing of pretending like I was really pleased that this wonderful couple who did everything for our church were moving away. Uh, And I was trying really hard to get that kind of graciousness of, yes, I'm delighted for wherever it is that you're going to end up. But I was struggling, if I'm honest, because they're wonderful. And then just at the last minute, they just had this change of heart. They had this strong sense that actually God wanted them to stay where they are in that house, but to use that house for the kingdom. 
And I remember going to see them and going for a walk with them around where they live. And having that conversation with them where they said, actually, we thought we should move. We thought we should be near some other family. But on reflection, we believe that God's given us this house and it's a lovely house to use it for the kingdom. If we stay, would you promise to ask us to use our house for anything and anyone that you might have to use it? So I went from having to pretend I was being gracious to trying to pretend that I wasn't going to just run and hug them straight away. But what a gift. What a gift to say, actually, what we have, we can offer, and we can offer it because we want to see it being used. So we've had Alpha away days, Christianity Export away days, PCC away days. We've had people go and stay there who needed to go and be put up somewhere at short notice. We've had others who've just gone and taken some time out there who are going through a really difficult period in their life and just been ministered to by this lovely Christian couple. What a wonderful example that is of giving up those things that are of some worth in order to gain or to love the king who is of all surpassing worth. Now the commentators differ slightly on whether this crowd that praised Jesus in those words uh, on Palm Sunday is the same crowd that by Good Friday, as we all know, are chanting, crucify him, crucify him. You can see there in Luke that these are the disciples who knew Jesus, who who are praising him. So the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God for all the miracles they had seen. So these are the people who have been with Jesus, who are coming with him into the city. And it's possible that actually they're not quite the same people who by Good Friday have been whipped up by some of the religious leaders to shout, crucify him. It's possible. I'm not 100% sure. And to be honest, I think the commentators differ on it. But either way, what we see is the people who praise Jesus on Sunday, who are not lo- no longer there on the Friday. For one reason or another, the praise of the Sunday has turned into the crucify of the Friday. And if we're going to worship and praise this king with our whole life, then it really has to be that. It's so easy to do it on a Sunday. It's so hard to do it when we're tired on a Friday morning. Maybe there's still parts of our life where this king hasn't yet come in. Even as Christians, there might be areas in our hearts and our lives that we know we haven't yet invited him in. Maybe there's something where you need to say, Jesus, you need to be the king of this part of my life as well as that part. Here comes the praiseworthy king. But of course, the Pharisees or the Pharisees that were there They don't like it. And it's a reminder that for all the praise that's going on and the celebrations that are happening, actually Jesus is still a divisive king. There's no getting away from it. If we want to try and present a Jesus who is palatable and acceptable to everyone and every worldview, then we will be presenting a Jesus who is not the Jesus of the Bible. There's no getting away from the fact that someone that makes the claims that Jesus makes is going to be a divisive king. The Pharisees hear the crowd uh, singing out, blessed is he who comes the king in the name of the Lord. They know what that means, what it implies about Jesus being the Messiah, the promised one who's come in God's own name to fulfill God's plan. The Pharisees know that and so they turn to Jesus and they say, hey Jesus, tell them to stop. 
Tell them to stop. They say, teacher, that's verse 39, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And how does Jesus respond? Verse 40. I tell you, he replies, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Jesus doesn't leave us with the option. He doesn't leave us with the alternative of simply having him as a, a good teacher, a good man who we can sort of take it or leave it, read his, read his things and choose which bits we, we want to have. He claims that he is the king. When his disciples make what is clearly a, a fairly divisive statement, Jesus says, if they don't say it, then the stones will say it themselves. And even if it was an idiom of the time, the point is clear, isn't it? Jesus is claiming those words for himself. He's saying, that is who I am. If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out, because I am the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is a divisive king. He is a king who splits opinion, but he doesn't leave us with the option of having him as a halfway house. Leaving him as this sort of vague teacher in the middle. I think, I'm sure you've heard this before maybe, uh, C.S. Lewis just sums it up so well. This claim that Jesus makes, the claim that they make, which he claims for himself, just cries out as one who is saying, this is who I am. This is how Lewis describes it. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And you can see it here as the disciples make those claims about him. He says, if they don't say it, the stones will say it because this is who I am and this is why I've come. Jesus is a a provocative king. We don't want to try and package him so neatly and so nicely so as not to offend anybody. Now, we don't want to go out of our way to offend people unnecessarily with the wrong things. But if we do upset or offend people, then let's make absolutely sure we're upsetting and offending them with the gospel. Because it's in hearing that gospel and being challenged by that gospel that the Holy Spirit will work to bring those people to a saving faith in Jesus. In a world, or in a culture at least, that is by and large so comfortable... We need and we have a king who cuts to the heart of the matter and leaves us no other option. And so finally we get to the last few verses. As Jesus approaches Jerusalem and sees the city, verse 41, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. You can feel the compassion in his warning to the people of Jerusalem. He can see what's coming. Much of what he describes here is fulfilled uh, about 40 years later in the Roman sacking of Jerusalem, which was horrific and horrendous. And we've had a terrible reminder over the last 
few weeks of what humanity can do when evil is let loose. And it was much the same in around AD 70 when the Romans absolutely ripped Jerusalem uh, to the ground. But don't miss the compassion of Jesus. This king who came, who knows us, who knows what we need, who knows uh, the truths and secrets of our hearts. This king who is worthy of our praise our whole life. And this king who still divides opinion. This king has such compassion for the people. A little earlier in Luke, he's already spoken of how, like a mother hen, he would have loved to gather up the chicks, gather up God's people, but they would not have him. And now again he says... Verse 44, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Sounds like if they'd only recognized him, then perhaps things would have been different. It wouldn't have needed to end in the death and despair that the Romans are so sadly so able to produce. This king's compassion I once actually um, with Ben did a talk uh, for some young people and uh, I was asked to explain the gospel. I think I gave a very good technical explanation of the gospel about sin and salvation, about atonement and all of those things. But at the end, one of the young people was asked, well, how do you feel? How do you think God feels about you now? And they just sort of said, indifferent. See, I'd explain the technicalities of the gospel, but I'd missed something of the heart of the Savior who loved them. The heart of Jesus who weeps over a city which is lost. The heart of a Savior who weeps for the same people that we pray for and go on praying for, that we would love and long to see come to that faith in Jesus. He loves them even more than we do. We mustn't lose this king who came, who knew what he was doing, who, who was able to be, uh, who's worthy of our praise and who stood up to the Pharisees and was clear on his mission of where he was going and what he was doing. He did it because of love. We mustn't lose that. We mustn't lose sight of the fact that he weeps over the lost just as much as heaven celebrates over the saved. Let's not have a Jesus who is mechanical in his salvation. Let's have a Jesus of the Gospels who knew what he was doing, who is worthy of our praise, who committed to the truth even in the face of opposition. Do we welcome that King? Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, I pray that you would always give us an understanding of you from your word, from the truth of who you are. But help us, Lord, always to be ready to be challenged, encouraged, and convicted by that same word, to see you for who you are, to get a fresh insight of this king who came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and who wants to be the king in our hearts and in our lives who with great love chose what you knew was before you to go to the cross in order to pay the price for our sin that we might have forgiveness and new life in you. 
And Lord, you did it out of love. Love for us, love for the Father. Love for the things you've made. Oh, Jesus, would you help us to welcome you again in our hearts, in our lives, in every area that we might share in that joy of walking with you through this life and on into eternity. We ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.